Welcome to Puro Politics, the political podcast of the San Antonio Express News. My name is Gilbert Garcia, opinion writer and columnist, and I'm joined by Nancy Pryor Johnson, deputy editorial board editor and columnist. And uh, on January 5th, uh, Bear County and the city of San Antonio uh, unveiled a collaborative public safety action plan, which had been a few months in the making. Uh, and was really a response to concerns about violent crime. And specifically, we had uh, some uh, shootings of uh, police officers uh, last year. And uh, our guest today is, you know, has played a major role in both the design and will play a major role in the implementation of this public safety action plan. Uh, judge Ron Ronhell is the, uh, the judge of the 379th uh, District Court. And he's the administrative judge for Bear County's criminal uh, court system. He's also the host of the Beyond the Gavel uh, podcast. Judge Ron Hill, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me, Gilbert. I, I was looking at the letter that you sent to uh, uh, County Judge Peter Sakai on October 26th, mm-hmm. um, which uh, you know had a lot of suggestions. You, you clearly you know talked to a lot of stakeholders, and we had kind of worked to develop kind of a blueprint for going forward. Um, and, and so I see a lot of what I see in this public safety action plan was, was was in that letter that you that you wrote to him. Is that really where the process began or where did the, the, the public safety action plan uh, process, uh, where did, what initiated it? A lot of the things within the public safety action plan were actually things that we had been talking about within the county system. Mm-hmm. The issue is, how do you bring that forward? How do you make that a priority with the stakeholders that have the funding obligations mm-hmm. uh, for some of those things? Uh, we had already applied for grants within the state. Uh, I, I applied for a, a, a grant with, it's called the Technical Training and Assistance Program through TIDC, which gave us a million dollars actually study the system. Mm-hmm. Um, we've gotten a lot of grants within the last couple of years that we've applied for and have actually obtained. So some of these things are already in the works. However, uh, because of the pressing issue, I know the media was really concerned about mm-hmm. about the issues going on with police officer involved shootings. Nancy, I know your husband is a police officer. He's retired. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And I know how difficult that is. And thank you for your service and thank him. Uh, when I was in college, I had a friend that I'd go to her home and, and her father and her brother were police officers. Mm-hmm. And I just remember her being glued by that police radio all night long. I really, really felt for her. So I recognize the value of that. Um, and so these issues brought forth within the system that urgency to start mm-hmm. talking about these things and start talking about how are we going to implement these things. Mm-hmm. So I saw it as an opportunity to say, hey, let's go ahead and start start dealing with these things that we within the system can see as being problems. Mm-hmm. The big thing, obviously, is the communication between the city and sure. the county. One of the things that that struck me about the letter was you talked about is there's been so much discussion about bail, the bail uh, amounts that that magistrate judges uh, set, and uh, a lot of discussion. And some of it, I don't know how much of it is, is based in in reality or actual data. This the idea that you know, we have repeat violent offenders uh, who are you know who are out in, out in the streets uh, and have maybe low uh, bail set for them. You you kind of push back against the idea that uh, that we have a bail problem, and I, I, if I understood right in the letter, you're you're basically saying that that the the, the bail amounts that are being set in Bear County are are, basic, are pretty much in line with what we're seeing elsewhere. I mean, is that is that fair to say? You know, the first meeting we had with the city, and I'm talking about the county and the city. Um, the narrative was repeat violent offenders mm-hmm. out on bail committing these offenses. Right. And, and I didn't need to correct them. I did say, you know, that's not really the situation yeah. here. Cause out of these six officer involved shootings, 
Two of them had a prior history that you could call a violent history. One guy had a misdemeanor assault. Mm -hmm. And so that actually is not a felony offense. So only one truly had a prior felony offense that we could call repeat violent offenders. So I'm not sure how that terminology came into play. And obviously, once that entered the lexicon, everybody started to use it. Um, But I think when the police chief first started talking about this issue, in my view, uh, I can't put words in his mouth, but in my view, he was more focused on the fact that these individuals were out in society, not necessarily out because of bail. Later, that conversation pivoted into a bail issue. So I did the research. Mm-hmm. Turned out that in the last five to seven years, our magistrates in Bear County have been setting these bail amounts at the exact amounts that they had been set out um, previously. Um, and so when you look at homicide cases, murder cases, manslaughter cases, those bail amounts had actually gone up within the last few years, almost twice as high as what they were before. Um, the way bail works, before a few years ago, um, we did a series of reforms here in Bear County. We used to have something called bail schedules, right, where somebody's arrested for a certain type of offense, let's say a third degree felony, they'd get a certain bail amount that was the standard And that's where the magistrates would start. They'll start at like maybe $10,000. Second degree felony would go up to $20,000. Aggravated felonies would be 75. And magistrates really didn't vary much from that. The law says is that judges are not allowed to ever influence other judges on how to rule on specific cases. Mm -hmm. So as a result of that, uh, the magistrates don't take any influence from us. They basically review whatever documentation is in front of them. They take evidence from each side and making these determinations, and then they go from there. So when we remove these these uh, schedules that existed for bail, they really didn't vary much from them. If anything, they went up. We tend to hear people say, uh, particularly when there is a, a, a an arrest made for a violent offense, people will say, "Well, this there, sh- there should be no bail at all. Why are they, why is this person getting you know getting an opportunity to receive bail?" Um, and if you could talk a little bit about, you know, how much leeway magistrate judges have when it comes to setting bail, because, I mean, they've got there. There are restrictions that are placed on them when it comes to handling these kinds of things. So the first thing is every single person arrested at the initial arrest, when they go to a magistrate, they have a right to bail. So they have a right to get out if they secure a bond and bail and bond sometimes are used interchangeably. Sure. They really kind of mean different things, but they go before the magistrate. The magistrate has to review certain issues, things like. What is the safety to the community? What is the safety to the defendant? Is there a victim that is involved? How violent was this crime? And one of the things that Houston, Harris County got sued for is they have to consider what the family could afford and getting this person out on bail. In other words, if it's an impoverished family, let's say the family makes $10,000 a year, a bail setting for a nonviolent crime at a million dollars is unreasonable, right? That person will never come out on jail, out of jail mm-hmm. while their case is pending. The purpose of bail by our constitution is to ensure somebody's presence at court and at all the court hearings. So the magistrate is considering these kinds of issues. Um, before, before April of 2022, um, the magistrates really didn't have a statewide or a nationwide view of what somebody's criminal history looked like. Whatever was brought to them is what they had before them. That's starting to change now with some implementation of something we called Senate Bill 6, which came out through the governor's office and then subsequently passed in the legislature. So, I, I mean, one thing that, that has in conversations we've had with the district attorney, police chief and so on, I, I guess there, there's been a question about how the level of communication that happens between 
law enforcement and the magistrate judge, make sure the magistrate judge is, is completely aware of everything. And, and I guess there, there is information that is available to the magistrate judge that they can access, um, when, when someone is brought in. But is that, is that when you look, cause I know that, that magistration is going to be an area that you're really going to be focusing on as this is, is implemented. Is that an area that you think can be improved just just to have that communication so that the magistrate judge knows everything there is to know? Absolutely. There's a couple of points that go along with that. Right. So the first point is um, police officers don't go directly. And when I say police officers, we're focusing solely on San Antonio Police Department. Right. There are 23 municipalities within our county. The other municipalities go directly to our intake assessment over at the Bear County. Right. Over where the jail's at. SAPD takes their individuals first to processing through uh, the detention center on Frio Street. Mm -hmm. And so oftentimes that delay where individuals go to that processing center prior to going to the Bear County Center um, causes us to lose a lot of that communication with police officers. So if certain police officers with certain violent type offenses go directly to the South Tower, which is which is what we call the, the county facility, mm-hmm. then then they would be available for these magistrates to communicate with. Now, you asked a question about bail and how that works. At the onset, I indicated that everybody has a right to bail. However, there are some provisions in the law that are constitutional where under certain circumstances, and they're kind of difficult to identify and difficult to find, within seven days, if there is a certain crime that fits a certain criteria, and the state can prove that in a hearing before a judge, and it's got to be the district court judge, within a judge that uh, this crime was committed and there's a burden of proof that's been met, not as high as proof beyond a reasonable doubt, which, which is a jury trial standard, but a little less than that, mm-hmm. but still subsequently up there. If they can prove that, then that bell can be removed. So then the person would not have an opportunity to get out of jail. The issue with that is that trial, that disposition must take place within 60 days. And currently indicting a case within 60 days is a very difficult proposition in our system. I think when the Constitution was created and those provisions were put in place, didn't really think too much about big urban areas like Bear County in developing that type of process. So that type of process is what I'm working on within, within the plan. It's going to take a little bit of time to develop it because there's a lot of different people involved. What folks don't always understand is just with magistration, you have so many different agencies that are involved, so many different public officials. You think of the district attorney's office, the county judge and each of the commissioners, each of the judges, district clerk, county clerk, the sheriff, a lot of folks that they put in place like pretrial services. And I could go on and on. There's Mm -hmm. just a lot of different parts of the system that are almost a bureaucracy in and of themselves. Then coming together, it makes it difficult to put all that together to make these kind of plans work. Yeah. We've talked before about the the role of the magistrate judges, and, and I remember you sharing some information that was a little different than what I expected or what I imagined. Uh-huh. Can you just kind of walk us through the role of a magistrate judge? Like, what are their days like? What are they juggling? And what exact communication are they getting in their hands? Um, is it on a computer screen? Is it on paper? I mean, how does it work in Bear County? Well, it's an interesting it's an interesting topic. And I think one of the things that we had talked about is the system that we use in Bear County that is used throughout all the different agencies is a 1972 Dawes program, <laughs> which is one of the things which we identified in the plan. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so this Dawes program, um, the county has taken a long time to sort of try to change. 
it's, it's a green screen where you got to put in a code to get different information. Frankly, I cannot even use it. So anytime I want information from the system, I got to lean over to a clerk or to my coordinator and ask her to look something up for me. Um, codes change every day, th- that type of thing. And so um, we're in the middle of implementing sort of like the Windows version of the computer justice system. So these these magistrates currently, because we don't have that implemented yet, that was supposed to come in two years ago. There's been a delay in bringing that in. It's a very arduous, difficult process. So the magistrates simply are sitting there, right? They come in. We have three full-timers. We have about 12, 11 to 12 part-timers. We've lost one or two. We haven't, we haven't re-upped those positions yet. But they basically sit there. They wait for folks to come in. Now, the way it works over at the county facility, because the city brings in people by the busloads, right? The city of San Antonio takes their folks over to their processing. It was They would wait between having 12 to 20 plus people before they would bring them over to save money. Mm-hmm. So bringing them over then would give these magistrates a very limited amount of time to see each person. Um, sometimes the public defender, which we have there at the location, did not have an ability to interview these folks with enough time. Sometimes pretrial services didn't have a chance to interview these individuals that were arrested. There is a mental health assessment that takes place. Sometimes we couldn't do that. Mm-hmm. So these folks are shepherded through very, very quickly. Um, because the public defender didn't have a lot of time to review these files, the DA was in the same situation. So think of it as a cattle call. Think of it as the magistrate is sitting there. They're waiting for folks to come in. They trickle in and then you get a busload of 20 people and then you got to pump it out. Right. And sometimes these things happen at the end of a shift, at the beginning of a shift. And so it bleeds over into trying to figure out how to handle certain issues. Mm -hmm. Um, Part of this new system that we're talking about is incorporating called uh, a, a, a plan that the state put in called the public safety plan. And there's a reporting system that they are now requiring all magistrates. That reporting system then allows all magistrates before they set bail to go in and have an opportunity to review somebody's entire criminal history. The issue with that is it's so new, some of the smaller counties have not been putting in effectively the information that's accurate. Mm -hmm. And as a result of that, we're not always getting accurate information. So that's starting to take shape. It's starting to improve. You can see the state is doing the same thing that Bear County is in terms of trying to make sure that we keep our public safe. Mm -hmm. And I just know, like, especially in domestic violence cases, there's just so many cases. I mean, when you just go online and just try to research and there's case after case after case. And they just kind of, they start stacking up on top of each other. And I would just, I would think, and that's just me trying to write stories over here and research. And I'm just thinking of these magistrate judges just, just sitting there and trying to go through it so quickly. I mean, how many minutes or how much time do they have on average per case? They don't have much time. Sometimes they just have a minute or two. Wow. And, it, and it is difficult. <laughs> now, you, you got to remember this as well, is that the role of the police officer is to keep us safe. Right. So when they arrive at a scene, if there's a scuffle going on, if there's a lot of times the idea is there's a lot of calls. Police officers also uh, they have to get to a lot of different places. And so they have to make an arrest, remove individuals from that particular system and bring them over into the justice system. Once they're in the system, then now we're dealing with them from the legal standpoint. Mm -hmm. So they may throw a lot of different types of of charges on an individual because they don't know what's going to stick. 
They're just trying to make sure that folks are safe. And by and large, obviously, police officers have done a great job in keeping us safe. But then when it gets over to the intake session, the section, Mm -hmm. then it's time to make sure that the law can be followed and certain processes can be applied. And sometimes that's a very different standard. And then they have their rights, too. I mean, I'm I'm also thinking about it. That other side of things is that you can't keep anybody. I mean, you have to really follow the law and the Constitution. That's right. um, Which it seems very difficult. I didn't realize it was just minutes. That's terrible. Judge, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about outstanding warrants. You know, we, we so much focus is, is, is given to uh, bail amounts. And we had a recent case uh, involving a killing spree that took place in San Antonio and Austin. Mm-hmm. Uh, Shane, the defendant, Shane James Jr., uh, allegedly uh, murdered six people. And there were, I think, three others injured. And, uh, you know, there was a lot of tension given to the fact that he had been, uh, he was, uh, he'd been out on bail and, and uh, uh, Texas Organizing Project had had, had helped uh, uh, him pay for the bail. Um, but his his uh, his previous offenses had been uh, misdemeanor uh, assaults. And uh, I, I mean, my understanding is that even if he had not been bailed out, he would have been out. He would have been free by the, because the, the, those incidents happened uh, or the previous incident happened in early 2022. Uh, and uh, these recent uh Murders happened uh, at the end of 2023, but beyond that, there, there was I was I thought it was interesting that after he was released on bail, um, I think the day after that he cut off his ankle monitor, and there were there's an outstanding warrant for his arrest. I think there was even an incident at, at some point where uh, it, his his family called, uh, and law enforcement was there and they made the decision to uh, you know not to to take him in, um, and so I I just. Think that that's we maybe that issue of the fact that there are people out there with outstanding warrants not getting picked up. Um, I think that maybe sometimes gets overlooked because the bail issue is one that people just tend to to, <clears throat> to th- that that tends to be the one that they they see as the issue. Well, to give you an idea as to how complicating the issue is, mm-hmm. um, the bail that was set was not a magistrate that was put in place by Bear County, by Bear County judges. Mm-hmm. There are different types of magistrates. Mm-hmm. Um, the, that particular bond was set by a judge that was employed by the state through the regional administrative judge appointed as a visiting judge. And so sometimes uh, the county contracts with the state to bring in visiting judges to help with certain issues. In this particular situation, this visiting judge has been brought in to help with helping the jail clear. And so those kind of those kind of bonds when people say, hey, the magistrate set those, those are not our magistrates. And and it's not that it's necessarily a bad thing or a good thing. Right. It's just it just shows you how complicating the system is. There are actually three different types of folks at magistrate individuals in Bear County. Now, one recently stopped magistrating. So there's three people that see people that get arrested. You get the city magistrates, get the county magistrates, and then you get a visiting judge that is mm-hmm. appointed through the state. And so no, understanding that um, there are a lot of other issues that come in play when somebody is out on bail. And as you're talking about Gilbert, let's say somebody does have a monitor, they cut that monitor off. What happens now? There are two types of supervision that happen in Bear County when people get arrested. The first is through pretrial services. So if somebody gets arrested and they're out on bail, then they go through what we call pretrial services. The county calls it judicial services. Mm-hmm. They have 
an organization called Sentinel, which monitors individuals 24-7. So if there's an individual that cuts a monitor that's supposed to have one, Mm -hmm. an individual that violates a zone that they're not supposed to go to, let's say that they're supposed to stay away from an alleged victim of a crime, um, then they immediately contact our magistrate over through Bear County and a warrant is issued. With probation, and there are violent people that get on probation, and and the question is, how does that happen? Mm -hmm. Um, Let's say that you're a DA's office and you're prosecuting a case and you interview folks that are uh, a witness, an eyewitness, a victim, and you walk away from that thinking, that was not a good interview. I do not think this person would do well in court. I don't feel comfortable bringing this case to trial because I don't think that they'll be believable for whatever reason. Or let's say witness problems. Witnesses don't show up. Um, let's say there's evidence problems or things that judges don't know anything about the case, but the parties understand the strengths and weaknesses. So let's say that there's a situation where the DA believes there's no way we can prove this case in court. And I've seen those situations. And as a result of that, we're going to place this person on community supervision to keep an eye on them and make sure they go through the arduous process of reporting and everything else. So a person like that can get on bond. Uh, they get released. They get probation. Now that they're on probation, part of their probation is to have a monitor. If they cut that monitor or if they or if they otherwise violate some safety zone, what happens then is that agency um, works 24-7. They would send some communication over to probation. And the first opportunity that probation would have an opportunity to know that that thing was sent would be the first business day. I see. So this past weekend was MLK Day. Mm-hmm. Right. It was a great well, the weekend before. It was it was a great opportunity for us to celebrate Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s legacy. But if something were to happen Friday at 10 p.m. and they send something in, probation won't know about it till, 10, till 8 o'clock in the morning on a Tuesday. So that that's problematic. So then you have people that are out there in violation of this thing and there's no warrant for their arrest. Mm-hmm. Also, officers like on the Shane James situation, officers have policies where they do not go into a home right. on misdemeanor violations. And so something like that, you could have somebody who's a violent individual, but they're on a misdemeanor type charge. They don't want to break into a home. So and they would have needed him to come out or they would need to wait until the situation allowed them to do. Correct. And, and if they go into a home by force, then you could see the results of that mm-hmm. you know, through other cases. Sure. That's another dangerous situation. Yeah. Um, you know, we, we, we heard so much about the effects of COVID-19 on the, the, the courthouse, Bear County and, and, and throughout the country. Um, I know that it created a, a backlog and for, for quite a while, you all had to do, had you know, virtual trials and you were working with a virtual, uh, jury pool. Um, where do, where do things stand now as far as, uh, I, I know this, it's been a process of trying to catch up because of, 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 you know, what the, that, uh, pandemic caused. Where do things stand now with Bear County? It was a difficult process, right? I was I was the unfortunate person uh, yeah. to have to make those decisions as a, as a when to stop in person jury trials, uh, when to stop in person hearings. Pre COVID, um, March of twenty twenty, uh, our our numbers were really great in Bear County on the felony district court side. We had sixty five hundred pending felony cases. Now there are ten criminal district court judges, which means we had over six six hundred and fifty. As an average, 650 cases per court. Mm -hmm. These are felony cases, so a lot of them um, had to be tried. And when they're tried, sometimes it takes a long time to try those cases. As we mentioned, I'm in a murder case now. Um, That case is over a week to try. So it's difficult to get these things processed. When COVID occurred, we ended up having at some point at the height of COVID, 6,800 pending cases. So we went up from, excuse me, from 65, 6,800 
to close to 10,000 cases. So we had a 10,000 case backlog at some point. We started in-person jury trials. I knew that it would take about a year to get back to our previous numbers, and we did. Mm -hmm. um, we were pump pumping out these cases as quick as we could. That put a lot of pressure on the district attorney's office and on defense attorneys. Um, subsequent to that, it's been probably uh, about 10 months since that year passed. We now have about 4,200 felony cases pending. Mm -hmm. That is an all-time low. Mm -hmm. We have never had that low case numbers in Bear County as it relates to felony charges. The issue is we pretty much got rid of all the cases that we could try. The harder cases to get rid of are the ones where somebody is looking at a significant amount of time. So think of somebody charged with a continuous sex abuse of a child, minimum 25 to 99 with no opportunity for parole. Think of a murder charge. Think of the more serious kind of cases. Those cases, because they're more difficult to plea bargain, Right. Oftentimes uh, the state will say, we'll offer you 35 years. A defendant will say, well, there's not a whole lot of risk here. Mm -hmm. If I'm going to spend most of my life in prison, I might as well just, you know, take the chance and have a jury trial. And so those are harder to try. Those do tend to take longer um, to process through the system. So our jail is not full. Right. We don't have a jail population issue. We really have an issue related to jail staffing. And that's a different conversation that we could have. But related to jail population, we have a huge percentage of folks in custody that are charged with these more violent crimes. Is the staffing problem? Is it just a challenge finding enough people to do it? Is it a, a workforce shortage? Or yeah. Yeah, I think it's a combination of things. And I think the DA's office has the same issue, right? Yeah. You have you, you don't have enough folks sure. at work. Um, it's it's tough for people that want to work within the system nowadays. They get in the system. Because of that staffing shortage, then they have to work more and mm -hmm. work harder, which is bad on morale. Mm -hmm. So you have bad morale, you have hard, it's harder to bring people in. So it's just a cyclical thing. They did increase the pay though, right? They, they did. Increase the they increased the pay in, in different ways. They increased the pay across the board for prosecutors. They increased the pay for, for, for public defenders that sort of work uh, equivalent in terms of what they do. But most importantly, they increased overtime pay for people to take care of these indictments. Cause we had in Bear County at one point when I was, when I was doing the research that I did over 10,000 pending indictments in Bear County, that's huge. Those are people that have not yet been processed that district courts can see. District courts don't gain jurisdiction over a case until it's gone through the grand jury process. Mm -hmm. Now I know that's come down a little bit. I know it's probably about 8,000 now. That's still a significant number, but you can see the effects of paying overtime to those prosecutors that are willing to come in on weekends to put extra time into those processes. I'm curious, what do you think um, are the biggest <clears throat> misconceptions out there right now in our county, in our city, um, about no. the way the way the courts work. I think as you're talking about these, as we talk about the backlog after COVID and stuff, I mean, one thing I hear a lot is, is that a lot of cases are being dismissed and just, you know, uh, or just really easy, just get them out, like work through the backlog. Is that one of them? And, and can you speak to some other ones as well? I was going to say that that's a very broad question, mm -hmm. <clears throat> but as it relates to the courts, um, one of the things that we talk about you, so let's focus on the issue that related to case dismissals and case mm -hmm. dispositions. So from the perspective of a judge, anytime you hear that a judge accepts a case or accepts a plea bargain, people have a tendency to believe that that means that that judge agrees with what the ultimate sentence was. And that's not the case. That's never possible, right? What, what a judge does in reviewing these cases is making sure that the constitutional provisions have been followed. On the criminal law, we deal with certain amendments, 4th, 5th, 6th, 8th, 14th amendments. And we want to make sure that these amendments 
does the defendant understand his or her rights? Did the, did the defendant get proper representation? Right. Did the defendant uh, give up trial rights knowingly, recognizing what the end effect is going to be? Nobody pressured the defendant. Right? All of these things come into play. So if a judge says constitutionally, this is a plea bargain that I'm going to accept, it means all the proper things have been followed. Um, it's been a fair process. Judges don't have an idea, as I mentioned before, they don't understand the ins and outs of cases. They don't recognize and it's impossible for them to recognize how strong cases are. Um, because they don't have an opportunity to see a case until it comes up to trial. Now, as it relates to the dispositions that go into plea bargains, oftentimes somebody has a lot of charges pending. Let's say, and I'll just give you a quick example, uh, somebody is accused of robbery. Let's say that they grab a piece of candy at HEB, they're walking out, uh, somebody tries to stop them, they push them aside, now they're charged with robbery. Hmm. And they're going out to a car, the car that they have is stolen, so they got a stolen vehicle. Um, police officer gives chase, they run. Now they're charged with evading arrest. Police officer gets them, they resist. Now they're charged with resisting arrest. Upon that resisting arrest, then maybe they'll spit on a police officer during that arrest. Now they're charged with a third degree harassment of a public servant. Mm -hmm. So you have a lot of charges pending in this one case. Think about having a jury trial and the taxpayer dollars, because we always want to be mindful mm -hmm. of, of the coffers. Um, and so think about having a jury trial in two separate courts. You got felony charges there and you have misdemeanor charges, different types of charges. Every one of those would be a trial. When there's a plea bargain, what the DA will do is they'll say, we'll take the more serious one or two cases and the others will be things for the judge to consider if it's an open plea bargain. Mm -hmm. So on a robbery charge, typically the, let's say the standard plea bargain with this person's history and the aggravated factors in this case would be X, but because they did all these other things, it's gonna be higher. Mm -hmm. So sentences do reflect <clears throat> all of those charges that come into the system, mm -hmm. but the way it's reported is you got three or four dismissals. That looks bad when you look at it that way, okay. but they're not really dismissals, dismissals. They're more, <clears throat> rather than try these cases, we're going to take them into consideration and make sure that the sentence is appropriate mm -hmm. when all these other kind of cases are looked at. That's a good question. Yeah. Judge, in 2021, the county uh, launched uh, a managed assigned uh, counsel system for indigent defendants. Can you talk a little bit about how this system uh, works? I mean, you, you played a huge role in putting that together. And is it working well? How's it, it going? It's a, that's a very good question. Um, I, so, so I, I applied through the state to get a grant. We got an $8 million grant to start the manager sign council program. Mm -hmm. Um, the initial proposal that I wrote and the positions that we got, we got 12 positions that were going to be paid for by the state. Think of, think of situations like this. Um, think of, in the year prior, we had 4,900 individuals who were arrested that had immigration holds. Mm -hmm. The law says that anybody charged with a criminal case that has an immigration type case pending has to understand immigration consequences prior to them being able to enter their plea. So as a result of that, cases were being reset because we had put upon criminal defense attorneys, you need to go out and consult with an immigration lawyer as to how this person's immigration rights will be affected. Mm -hmm. With a managed assigned counsel now, we have an immigration attorney that has the ability to work for every court appointed attorney within the county. He works mm -hmm. for the MAC. That saves a lot of taxpayer dollars because those letters were three to $400 each. Sure. That saves a lot of taxpayer dollars. It, it frees up the system to where we no longer have to wait for immigration uh, uh, consultations to take place by these individuals. And we make sure that everybody's constitutional rights are followed. Another important thing is we have 
case managers that work within the mental health section mm -hmm. of the MAC. Mm -hmm. So I started um, and we just got approved by the governor's office to be a specialty court. I run the felony mental health specialty court and and the funding was not there for a lot of years. So we know how difficult this is, right? We know that if somebody doesn't have mental health care, somebody who's bipolar, clinically depressed, schizoaffective disorders, these individuals are going to commit crimes if they don't get their medication. Mm -hmm. And so we do have a, so we have actually two social workers within the Manage Assigned Counsel Program that look at the underlying causes of crime. When you think of a holistic public defense, you think, right, how do you stop crime? Mm -hmm. And we know that crime comes from individuals that fall within a certain category. People that are young, not educated, don't have health insurance, don't have family support or community support. When I say not educated, I mean no high school education, mm -hmm. right? Uh, folks, folks that, that typically are minority, something like 71% are men now. Uh, so we see more females coming into the, into the fold. Uh, more and more of them are getting arrested. So, so we're, we're getting individuals that are looking at the underlying causes of crime. If they need healthcare, if they need housing, if they need medication, uh, if they need food stamps, if they need transportation because it takes them a while using the bus system, then these social workers are, are here to help them solve those particular issues. Mm -hmm. um, when I first came in as a judge in 2008, I got elected. We had one mental health care facility called Myoff. They had 30 beds for men, 30 beds for women. Mm -hmm. They were always full. Think about the backlogs that I'm talking about, 6,500 cases. Now, today, 15, 16 years later, the city and the county have a huge network of areas that we can send folks with mental health diagnosis. All sorts of inpatient programs, outpatient programs. We're partnering with private organizations to make sure that these facilities are available. So you can really see a difference happening within the community. Before we wrap things up, I want to ask you, um, you know, Looking at a year ahead, two years ahead, what are what are the, the the major things that you'd like to see the public safety action plan accomplish in 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 the short term? In the short term, I'm really happy to see the collaboration uh, between the DA's office and the chief, the police, the chief, chief of police in San Antonio. That's important. Um, you know what I told the group at our last meeting before we came up with our plan. Mm -hmm. I have never seen anywhere in Texas where county officials and city public officials come together and set up a series of meetings to discuss these kind of issues. Mm -hmm. The bureaucracy is so big mm -hmm. and what tends to happen, and I've seen it happen throughout the course of my career, um, folks tend to really look inward mm -hmm. and in looking inward, they don't really have an understanding as to how those misconnections sometimes occur. And so to take a step back and to, and to see these organizations work together to make these, these things happen is fantastic. Um, I was very clear in my conversations with them that if victims of crime, we always got to be cognizant that there are people out there that are suffer as a result of crime, that those individuals can't feel confident knowing that their law enforcement public officials are bickering. And so to put that out there in the media is kind of a negative thing. Mm -hmm. We live in a 24 hour media cycle. And so people have a real tendency to have a lot of fear. Um, the reality of it is even in a felony district court like mine, right? I handle the most heinous of crimes. And that type of a court, over 90% of people that get arrested are for nonviolent offenses. Mm -hmm. So I think the most important thing to see is that we continue to look forward and trying to improve the system. The system is made up of people, right? All of us wear rose-shaded glasses. All of us have our own perceptions. If you ask 20 different people to find to me what justice means in this case, you're going to get a different response. Sure. And so because the system is made up of people, there's always going to be an opportunity to improve. 
things like improving the computer system. I mean, it was interesting to me that we're in court. We're about to start a trial. Case has been pending a year and a half. And the DA's office comes in and says, we can't try this thing today because I just received 40 videos from the police that are that are important for this particular case. And you ask why? Well, the system between the evidence sharing process of the of the police city and the county DA's office was not compatible. Mm-hmm. So when you saw this, she was like, it's on a current case. That it, it, we just fixed it. Okay. Just, but but that was going on for years. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah. And and we we're talking about like how yeah. can we fix this? Well, this process. And it's allowed not that us. the police officers and detectives were not putting it in the system. That's correct. They were doing their job. They were they doing just, their job. It wasn't, it wasn't. Went somewhere in the cloud. (laughs) That's exactly right. And uh, and we just, we just realized how to fix that. Mm -hmm. So it's these kind of conversations. What did it take to fix that? Well, you know, it, well, it took this process, you know, it took the mayor, it took the mayor giving us a call. The, the mayor called me up initially and said, Ron, we want to, we want to yeah. have this collaboration mm-hmm. and we want to get together and talk about these things. And Judge Sakai jumped on that as well. So it took, it took this process. Generally speaking, those of us in the justice system get frustrated yeah. because we're thinking nobody's really paying attention. Right. Historically, counties across the state, th- th- this is a, another interesting fact. The state of Texas funds indigent defense, right? States generally Mm -hmm. fund indigent defense. As a state, we spend less than half of what the average is of all the other states combined. Mm. So that just tells you the importance that the state and the counties have put into the justice system. So those of us that work within the system love these opportunities to bring out and highlight and make these changes happen. Mm -hmm. And so this is an an unfortunate opportunity, but, you know, we have to take advantage of these situations in terms of in terms of helping the public understand is the funding going to be there for everything you want to get done? Obviously not, um, <laughs> you know, but, you know, any more funding is always appreciated. Yeah. Uh, our, I mean, much, our, if you got what's your wish list? I mean, how much how much would it cost? Uh, it wouldn't cost as much as people think. Mm-hmm. We fight with the county for just for instance. Right. We, we tried to get. We, we started an impact court to help us with these mm-hmm. unindicted cases to help shepherd them through faster, mm-hmm. to help the DA's office move them in. That entire cost is probably about $100,000. It was very difficult to get it from the county. We never got mm-hmm. it from the county. Wow. I had to go to the state to get a grant, Interesting. which is fine. But at some point, the state's not going to grant fund mm-hmm. that. So we fight over pennies sometimes, uh-huh. just mm-hmm. dollars. And Bear County does have a reputation I don't want to disparage anybody in office. I'm very happy to work with the folks that I work with, but we do have a reputation for underfunding the justice system. Mm -hmm. And a lot of what you see today is a result of that. And you would think Judge Sakai is helping on that, on that though, right? I mean, I mean, I would think he's, he's helping on that, helping them see and understand it as well. It's, it's wonderful to have a former district judge in that position. Mm -hmm. So, Yes. Judge Ron Hill, thank you so much for taking time out and uh, and being on the podcast. Really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed it. And uh, for everyone listening in, I hope you're doing well. We're going to be back again next week. Take care.